Welcome to Fire of Genius, a podcast dedicated to all things intellectual property presented by the Indiana University Mauer School of Law's IP Theory Journal. My name is Chris McMillan. I'm a 3L at Mauer, and I'm the audio editor for IP Theory. Today's podcast will be co-hosted by our editor-in-chief, Zach Shepard. Thanks, Chris. That's right. I'm Zach Shepard. I'm a 3L at Mauer School of Law, and it's my pleasure to be here with Chris today to talk to two incredible scholars and practitioners in the IP community. So today's episode is a part of our 11th volume, and we're pleased to welcome David Gindler and Jasper Tran to the show. David Gindler is a partner at Millbank LLP's Los Angeles office, whose work spans a broad array of industries and technologies across the country. Mr. Gindler, would you like to uh, tell the audience a little bit about yourself and your career? Well, you know, my career began in an odd way, because as an IP litigator, when I was in college, the one thing I wanted to avoid, like the plague, was anything that looked like science, because it looked like really, really hard to me. So math classes, biology classes, you know, things that involved equations were sort of not my thing at all. Then I became a lawyer. And it wasn't until about 10 years into my practice where I sort of stumbled into doing a patent case. And it was actually a case involving technology to render graphics on a computer. This is a long time ago. The technology has moved on uh, since then. But I discovered this incredible thing about IP law. People pay you money to learn how stuff works. And then you get to teach jurors and judges how it works. And I found that to be a lot of fun. And so now, although I have literally no scientific training, I have an undergraduate degree in philosophy, I deal with science all the time, and it is incredibly rewarding part of my life and my practice. That's great. And I'm definitely kind of, I feel like I'm in your shoes a bit because I was a professional musician before I came to law school and I haven't counted past four in years. So <laughs> I, I totally get it. I've, I'll tell you one anecdote. Yeah. I have a friend who's also an IP litigator. He was an English major and he says, you know what? Having been an English major was the perfect undergraduate major for me because all the patents that I work with are written in English. That's one way to look at it. Yeah. Now, Jasper, you're an associate at Millbank and a member of the firm's litigation and arbitration group. Would you like to tell us a bit more about yourself? Sure. Thank you, Chris and Zach, for having us here today. I'm a seventh-year associate at Millbank, LA, focusing on patent litigation and a little bit of technology transition uh, transactions. I have a more traditional IP career than David. I study uh, science in undergrads uh, at UC Berkeley, and then I heard from a class, an organic chemistry class about the rights of uh, inventors. And that kind of piqued my interest. So I took a, a, a legal study class in undergrads and that kind of just sparked my interest in law school overall. So I went to a University of Minnesota Law School. And after law school, I clerked for a federal judge in Denver. Then uh, kind of just start doing a lot of IP work since then. I'm what people would call a legal nerd and I often share my thoughts on um, just current trends and legal scholarships. Uh, focusing on IP law, technology law, and health law. In fact, I, uh, I co-wrote uh, an article on how judges, jurors, and lawyers can properly and reliably use uh, internet research in volume nine of IP theory, and happy to be involved with IP theory again today uh, in a different capacity and appear with Dave in the show. Yeah, that's great, Jasper. And I'm, I'm sort of like you. I have the hard science background. I got my engineering degree from UT Austin and I, you know, ownership and inventors rights sort of piqued my interest when I was in school too. And I think that's kind of what led me to be IP interested. So 
Well, that's great. And we're, we're very pleased to have you back and uh, are grateful for your continued support of IP theory. So Mr. Gillen, let's get into some questions. I'd love to start by asking you briefly about your impressions of the state of IP law today. You've got a storied career. We've read your bio and we know you've got an, an incredible career that spans multiple continents. Are there one or two topics that you identify as particularly pervasive and, and worthy of the IP bar's attention? So the IP bar thinks about lots of wonky IP issues. And I could talk about that first, but actually let me talk about something else, which is most Americans actually think about IP issues every day. They just don't know they're thinking about IP issues every day. So what am I referring to? Most Americans ask themselves frequently, why are my drug prices so high? Well, I know the answer to that question. The answer to that question is it involves an enormous investment in order to bring a drug from someone's idea in a lab to actual commercialization. And by a lot of money, we're talking about for certain kinds of products, a half a billion dollars, a billion dollars, and sometimes they don't work out. So who would invest that kind of money for a product unless you get some kind of protection from competition the day after you launch your product? Well, that's patent rights. So at its core, a patent is simply the right to exclude others from using what you patented. Now there's a deal though, that is part of the trade-off to get a patent. To get a patent, you have to teach the world how you did it. Your patent has to disclose enough information so that any other scientist working in the field would know exactly how to do what you're doing. So that advances science, it advances knowledge. But for the investment, companies like Genentech and Biogen and other leaders, they get a period of exclusivity. And now there's this debate that well, that's going on, it's going on now, it will continue to go on, which is where to draw that line? How much exclusivity should somebody get? How broad should patent rights be? Should they be limited to the specific invention that's covered? Or what if you cover, you're the very first person to come up with a kind of new drug? Should you get a patent on all drugs of that kind or just the one that you came up with? This is actually a debate that affects Americans every day. I think it's a debate which is coming up now that we're in a pandemic and new medications, new vaccines are coming on the market. And so people are thinking about IP rights and how they affect the health, not just here in the United States, but around the world. Yeah, fascinating topics. It's something, you know, we've studied the basic bargain for a patent in patent law and our other IP related courses. Enablement is such a huge issue. And I know it's been a hot topic of debate at the federal circuit for quite some time now. And so it's great to hear that, uh, that all those issues are still relevant. And so I'm sure we'll get plenty of practice and with enablement and, and, and the like in our careers. Jasper, I, I want to follow up with you. Do you have any IP hot topic issues that you think are uh, particularly pervasive right now? I'm going to give you maybe an opportunity to respond to the same question. Yeah. So um, I, I think the other issues outside of the COVID-related issue with the PAN waiver that David kind of hinted on is the, the 101 issue and PAN eligibility eligibility and subject matter eligibility that it's kind of been debated ever since like early 2010 mm -hmm. when the Supreme Court gets into the, the, the four cases, the 
the, the Mayo, the Alice, the Bilski's case, that they start establishing a new framework. A after that, it, it just becomes a, a huge mess on the 101 issue that cert petitions been going up every year and there's a lot of bills going on about 101 that is worthy of the, the IP bar's attention. And I think everyone's still following up on that issue. Yeah, that's great. And we're going to follow up with you on, on Section 101 and your analysis on the Alice and Mayo framework and maybe its vitality here in a little bit. Um, but it's great to hear that, that those, are, uh, those are also you know, hot topics right now. Mr. Gindler, back to you. Uh, a hot topic that you hinted at earlier was uh, the potential for IP waivers or a, a, a shying away from enforcing patent rights uh, with certain COVID-related uh, inventions. Could you briefly walk us through sort of this basic concept of the IP waiver and some of the mechanisms that U.S. and other WTO countries uh, have in place to effectuate the waivers? So this is, in my view, an interesting and virtually irrelevant debate. There are lots of discussions going on about how to effectuate an IP waiver, um, whether through the World Trade Organization, World Health Organization, on a country-by-country country basis, on a company-by-company company basis, whereby each company would agree are the public good not to enforce their IP rights. So why do I say this is completely irrelevant? If every patent holder tomorrow morning announced, we will not be enforcing any of the patents that we have that relate to COVID vaccines, do you know what would happen in terms of the worldwide manufacturing and distribution of vaccines? Absolutely nothing, nothing would happen. It would make absolutely no change whatsoever. Patents are not standing in the way of anything. You know what's standing in the way of this? It is really hard to make vaccines. It requires extraordinary technology. Vaccines are a kind of product called a biologic. They're made of biological material. They are incredibly hard to manufacture. And there are a limited number of places in the world that have the facilities and the scientific expertise to do so. The idea of starting a manufacturing facility from scratch tomorrow morning to build a facility that could manufacture COVID vaccines is nonsense. That is not going to happen, not at least in in the timeframe that would be required to actually have it make a difference in the pandemic. The technology that's involved to synthesize the mRNA and to have it expressed, and then you have to put it into a nanoparticle, which is its own separate technology, so that it can be ingestible into the human bloodstream and then digested by a cell, and the cell expresses the mRNA, which codes for a portion of the spike proteins. This is not easy work. Biologics are hard to make. What would be required to change everything, you would have to have an enormous, historic, unprecedented public-private partnership to distribute biologics on a global scale. But the idea of someone coming along with no experience in this and starting up and building a facility to manufacture vaccines People need to stop thinking about that. Let me give you an example of what I mean. So uh, there's a biologic product that's used to treat a number of diseases, including non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. It's called rituximab, one of the very first biologics to come on the market. Um, it was approved by the FDA in 1997. Now, 20 years later, 
a number of companies wanted to make what are called a biosimilar version of that, essentially a generic. Many companies tried, including a hugely successful European-based multinational pharmaceutical company named Borangel Ingelheim. So they have leading scientists, and their job was to basically copy rituximab. That's it. Make it. All they had to do was copy it and run clinical trials on it and show that it worked as well. And you know what happened? They failed. It didn't work. They got poor results on the clinical trials and they gave up. That's not for want of trying. Now imagine a company with the expertise of Berenger Ingelheim was not able to duplicate a product that's been on the market for over 20 years. Just try and imagine replicating brand new vaccines from scratch. This is the wrong conversation. This is not an IP conversation. I don't think IP should stand in the way. And I don't really think anybody in the industrialized world thinks IP should stand in the way. The United States doesn't, China doesn't, Russia doesn't, but that's not going to solve our problem. If it was that easy, you know, we'd all be eating out at restaurants right now. Yeah, that, that's a frame I a frame I've never thought to look through that maybe it's not IP rights that stand in the way, it's supply chain. And I mean, obviously the immense difficulty that it would take to uh, to get a vaccine uh, or a biosimilar to uh, to market. That's that's ridiculous. Wow. I never thought about it that way. Yeah, Zach appeared to be surprised to hear David's answer. So, so maybe let me put it in a different way that maybe it, it kind of be more intuitive. So you learn the basics of IP exchange. The quid pro quo is that um, the inventor would disclose his invention to the public in, in, a, in a public way, in a patent application, and it get examined by the examiner um, to meet all these qualifications, including enablement, and in exchange for the right to exclude others. And others still make the products and they, you know, they infringe and the inventor have to sue them in court. But the disclosure is already out in the public. His, the, 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 the inventor's patents, uh, he, he or she already disclosed everything is needed to be using the, the vaccines or the pills and whatnot related to COVID. So tomorrow, if the inventor just lose that right to exclude, the knowledge of how to make the vaccines or the pills already been public. So nothing is stopping them from making the vaccine. It's, it's something else. Is how, how do you get to actually make the vaccine in, in a practical sense and not in a theoretical sense? So let me follow up now. If, if there's no reason to enforce the patent right, what's the, what's the purpose of even getting the patent in the first place then? If that quid pro quo, there's no, it, it would be hard to police or there'd be no incentive to police then, right? If, if other people would be able to uh, practice the, the invention. So people get patent rights, as I mentioned, because they expect to make enormous investments um, in vaccines and other medications. So that's true of companies like Pfizer and Moderna. One of the very interesting questions to ask yourself is this, how is it that industry was able to come up with a vaccine for COVID-19 in like six months? Okay. So I know the answer to that question, which is that people didn't think up mRNA vaccines last Thursday, there were scientists who were specialists in this. One of those scientists is a woman who works, who used to work at the NIH, whose name is Hizmekia Cor Corbett. She is, in some sense, the, uh, the parent of COVID vaccines because she is an expert in mRNA vaccines. All sorts of work had been done. All sorts of investments had been made 
in this technology. And then a global pandemic came around. Mm -hmm. And now those investments are paying off. And companies with smart scientists were able to use and harness that technology to create remarkable vaccines that went from the laboratory to clinical trials in six months. That is extraordinary, but it didn't happen last Thursday. It happened because of investments over time. mRNA vaccines, that technology, it's not a 2020 thing, but its use became profound in 2020 and 2021. And that's why our system of patent protection encouraged that research and encouraged that research at a time when we needed it most. So let me let me follow up quickly then. Do in your experience, Mr. Gindler, do you worry ever about pharmaceutical companies or vaccine manufacturers not being able to produce an invention, say, because there's a patent thicket in the way preventing them, like one piece of IP that they need to help get this vaccine to market, but they can't get around this IP that, that exists? Well, yes, I do worry about that. And so do many others. You use the term patent thicket. Uh, that's become a bit of a rallying cry. It first came up um, in a number of contexts, but it came up with respect to a product called Humera, which is a, it may be one of the largest selling products in the world. Humera has like an army of patents that surround it. I mean, we're talking about 30, 40, 50 patents that get litigated when uh, when somebody wants to try to bring a generic version of Humera market. And there's been a lot of outcry around the question of how can you possibly have like 30 patents or 40 patents on a given product? And the answer is, well, they don't actually have 30 or 40 patents on one product. What they often have is a patent on the product. Then they have a patent on a way of using the product. Mm. Then they have a patent on another way of using the product. Then they have a patent on a way of manufacturing the product. Then they have a patent on a way of manufacturing many different kinds of products, but it's also really useful to make Humera. And the question then becomes one of policy, which is, well, okay, but should you really be able to extend your monopoly like that much further? So that's a very important question. And I think it's a question that legislators are debating right now. It is a completely fair question to be asked. How much patent protection is appropriate? And is too much patent protection a problem? Should there be just a limit on how long you can erect an army of soldiers, patent soldiers around your pharmaceutical exclusivity? Yeah, very interesting. I have a different take on that. I mean, I, I appreciate what, what David said with the, the whole evergreening process. You might hear the term, uh, it's kind of similar to pan thicket when they kind of keep expanding the life of the pan, they just kind of had some, some different aspect of the same product or the, the same invention. But, but a different take on that is that companies don't really worry about IP in, in the sense that like there's these compulsory licensing is a term you might have heard uh, thrown around that they, they can actually infringe an IP and just pay up later. And that's fine. The only thing they really need to worry about is preliminary injunction and actual injunction, okay. stopping them from actually making the product and just halt everything, which is an extraordinary remedy right. that right. court rarely enforce. 
But otherwise, even if there's a piece of IP, it's kind of stopping them in the way either they're trying to get a license from it or they're just going to infringe it. Willfully, yeah, they're going to have to pay up a little more. But unless they get an injunction later, they nothing is stopping them. Yeah, no, th- thank you for that. Let me add one thought here, because we were talking about patent, fi- patent thickets, how a pharmaceutical company can use patents to create um, perhaps too much exclusivity. But I want to give an example of the opposite. Pharmaceutical companies are frequently generous with their technology. And let me tell you what I mean. Sometimes pharmaceutical companies have what I'll call platform patents. They've developed an underlying technology that could be generally applicable to a broad array of applications and diseases. It is not uncommon for large biotech companies to license that technology on commercially reasonable terms to anybody who wants it, as long as they're not developing a product that directly competes. So let me give you a real world example. Genentech is the owner of a patent which expired at the end of 2018. It was the foundational patent for creating genetically engineered antibodies, specially created antibodies which could treat diseases that had been really untreatable. Genentech, since that patent issued, has always licensed it on commercially reasonable terms to anybody who wanted it, as long as they weren't directly competing with Genentech. It's among the most widely licensed patents in the biotechnology world. That's not the only example. There's a company called PDL Biopharma, which also had a patent in the antibody space. They found out a way to make antibodies, which are first made from mice, to look human. And they licensed that patent to anybody who wanted it on commercially reasonable terms. So it's important to understand while you hear often sort of the bad boy stories about patent thickets and the like, there are as many heroic stories where pharmaceutical companies use their technology to enable the proliferation of new medicines, even by their competitors. So if, if you think about the, the back to the foundational basic of IP is to recoup the R&D investment, companies want to license out these patents. They don't want to just stop people from making these, you know, drugs or vaccines and what, because they want the money to recoup the investment so they can fund the next research. So IP is used in a more positive way than these negative way that people really imagine it to be. Right. Good. And then obviously there's notoriety and there's a, a, Oh, what's, what's the word I'm thinking of? Like a good well-being, a, a positive image that you create for your company when you play nice in the sandbox and when you freely and fairly license your products out. So that that's good. And it's good to see that there's still, uh, there, there's hope despite uh, large th- patent thickets. And I'm, I'm glad to see that patent thicket isn't as horrible of a term as uh, as uh, maybe it's it's come to be in some scholarship. Um, yeah, well, co- companies want to build up goodwill, not just to the public, yeah. but to competitors as well. So later on, when they need a patent from a competitor, they can actually get a license from it. So not everyone is just blocking each other off and fighting each other. What Rather, they want to work collaboratively. Exactly. Well, great. So, okay, let's transition now. Jasper, wanted to come back to you to talk about eligibility and your interpretation of where we stand with subject matter eligibility in Section 101. We, we saw that you had recently 
co-authored a piece on Alice and Mayo and sort of how it's come to be seven years after the Alice decision. Why don't you talk to us a little bit about that, uh, uh, that article, and then you know, talk to us briefly about how you feel about eligibility and where it stands today. Sure. So um, I briefly discussed the Alice case earlier, and that came from the, the Mayo case from 2012. And uh, the impact of Alice is that it kind of really solidifies this two-step framework to analyze 101 issue. Uh, the first step is, are the patent claims directed to an abstract idea? And if it's a no, then you get a patent on it. And if it's a yes, then you ask the, the second question, which is, does the patent embody an inventive concept that amounts significantly more than an abstract idea? And if it's a yes, then it's a patentable, but if it's a no, then you don't get a patent on it. And it's, it seems simple enough, but no one really understands what an abstract idea is or what an inventive concept is. And these are very subjective issue that depends on what the judge eat for breakfast that day and, and, and how, how they feel about uh, the, the case law. And so what a lot of what I've done is I've done these statistical studies on the impact of Alice at the one year, two year, five years and seven years that you alluded to uh, about the invalidation rate when you raise when someone brings a, an Alice based challenge and the results are pretty stark at the one and two years mark, roughly 80% of invalidation rate across courts when a party brings an Alice challenge. But at the five to six years mark, you see the invalidation rate drop to about 56% has stayed there consistently. And I concluded that what you see with Alice is really an effect of reversion to the, toward the means as it approach long-term equilibrium, which is a very well-known concept in economics. To explain, at, at first you, you have these alleged infringer would rush to bring one-on-one challenge and succeed in the majority of them because there were just too many Alice acceptable claims asserted at the time. And as time passes, patent owners wise up and refrain from asserting Alice acceptable patents in light of the high invalidation rate. And the patent office get, got better too at issuing worthy patents that would pass the one-on-one challenge. But that you have these alleged infringers just become overconfident and keep challenging these patents using the Alice framework anyways. So the net effect of these two natural responses, um, you, it would drive the Alice-based invalidation rate down toward the equilibrium point. And we see this, uh, another instance of this in, in patent law when IPR just first came out, the inter-parties review. Uh, the first few months of um, 2014, the PTAP invalidation rate was more than 90%. And that this led to the then accepted view that the PTAP was called uh, the pan death squad where pans go to die. But the, the, the same kind of issue, you, you kind of observe the same two natural responses is that pan owners wise up and just refrain from asserting the IPR susceptible claims and the defendants still remain overconfident. So, so at some point they toward, progress toward the means and kind of equates what the, the, the same invalidation rate at the district court, which is in the low 40%. Great. Well, in the last couple of minutes that we have, we'd like to ask you maybe some more mundane questions about what your practice at Millbank is like. So uh, for instance, David, you were telling us before we started recording that your practice is very international. You're working with clients in Germany and China. Can you maybe talk about that? Oh, absolutely. So one of the great um, aspects of being an IP litigator is I get to work with companies local, international, startups, huge companies, individuals, multinational corporations. I represent and currently represent people and companies of all sorts of flavors. 
a lot of my work historically has been in life sciences. What do I mean by life sciences? Everything from pharmaceuticals to diagnostic tests. I remember in 2011, I was contacted by a startup that was called Ariosa Diagnostics. And they said, we need to talk to you. We think we're going to be involved in some patent litigation. I said, okay. I said, so what do you folks do? And they said, well, here's what we do. We have this technology where we can take a blood draw from a pregnant woman and we can find actually the fetal DNA that's in the pregnant woman's bloodstream and we can sequence the DNA and we can figure out to about 99.9% accuracy if the fetus is at risk of Down syndrome or other chromosomal abnormalities. And what that means is that we're basically going to put amniocentesis out of business. And I said, this sounds like science fiction to me. And they said, oh, no, we can do this. In fact, they can do it. And it is now the standard of care for pregnant women. They're not the only people who do it. This is like one of those remarkable things that I get to do in, in my practice. I also represent a surgeon who is based in Columbus, Ohio who came up with a uh, novel stent which treats abdominal aortic aneurysms. It's something that creates a path for blood to flow when somebody has a weakening of uh, their arterial wall. And he was the first to come up with this remarkable idea. And he spent years trying to convince a company which uh, we think is uh, infringing on that patent to take a license. He wasn't trying to, to be unreasonable. He tried very, very hard. And ultimately, he came to us. And so now we're his lawyers and we're pursuing his claims. So the practice is really remarkably diverse. We're neither plaintiff side nor defense side. We do both. That, I think, makes us probably a bit different than many other uh, firms in what we call big law. A lot of big law firms are really on the defense side. We do both. We enjoy doing both. We like having a broad array of clients and technologies. I like working with really smart people like Jasper, who can help me understand the technology. Jasper has training in chemistry. I do not. That makes us a great team. Yeah, that's great. Really quickly, now we're approaching the end of our time. Uh, for any law students who are interested in learning more about Millbank, how can they learn more about your firm? You can always do your own independent research, of course, but here's an option that I don't see many students take advantage of. Reach out to any one of us at Millbank and have coffee if you're local or do an, a virtual Zoom meeting. It used to be intimidating to dress up and meet in person with a practicing attorney, but now it's much easier to just jump on a, a Zoom call from the comfort of your own home located anywhere in the U.S. really, and meet lawyers in L.A., New York, D.C., for example. Lawyers take pride in their work, and they love to talk about what they do. Um, maybe David can talk about some of the people he spoke with during the pandemic. You know, during the pandemic, I had recent law grads reach out. Uh, I had people reach out who were at other law firms, people who I didn't know at all, who just wanted to talk about not just Milbank, but they wanted advice about their career, about what the market for lawyers looked like. I pretty much got a half an hour for anybody. And I'm pretty sure that I'm not alone. I'm sure that my colleagues at Millbank would do the same. 
And I'm pretty confident that actually people at other law firms would do the same. But I like talking to students and others. People were good enough to talk to me when I was trying to figure out what I was going to do in the practice of law, what law firm I was going to go to. And so I try to be uh, just as good of a citizen as others were when I was growing up. So if you want to talk to Jasper, you want to talk to me. As I tell people, I'm an email away. Great. So well, that's all the time we have for today. All of us at IP Theory would like to thank both David and Jasper for their time. Uh, we really appreciate it. If you have anything else you'd like to add, the floor is yours for one final thought from both of you. Well, I just want to thank you for this opportunity. It's been a lot of fun. Jasper and I, we're both sort of nerds. We like talking about IP issues. And so any chance we have to talk about IP issues with other people who like IP issues, well, sort of makes our day. I echo what David said. And thank you for having us today. Yeah, thank you for joining us on this episode of Fire of Genius. You can follow us on Twitter at C-I-P-R-Mauer, I-P-T-H, or reach out to us on our website at iptheory.indiana.edu. Thank you for listening, and we hope you tune in again next week.